0: Well, God's people, we want to come now to uh, hear God's word from the book of Jonah as we uh, continue and near the end of our Jonah uh, series. So this is going to be the second to last Jonah sermon. So one more. Um, and here, Jonah goes back to theology school uh, because we see that there is a gap between his head and his heart. He knows who God is, but he doesn't like who God is. It's fascinating uh, to me to think that some have said that Jonah has to be saved from his disobedience, running away from God in in the first part of Jonah, and then he had to be saved from his obedience here in the second part. He first he doesn't go to Nineveh, then he does. But I, I think he's being disobedient throughout. So perhaps a better way of saying it is that the first half of the book of Jonah highlights Jonah's outward disobedience. And the second half, part two, highlights his inward disobedience. Maybe that's a artificial distinction here because those things are always related. But we're going to see Jonah go back to theology school and learn from the Lord. And God is so gracious to bear with Jonah through all of this. It's astounding that God bothers with Jonah And he interacts with him rather than destroying him. So we're going to give our attention now to the reading of God's word in Jonah chapter 4. If you're able to stand comfortably, let's stand as I read for us from Jonah chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That is the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Lord, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And we know that faith comes from hearing the word. And so we pray that you would increase our faith as we hear your word. Lord, give faith where there is none. Give faith where there is little. Lord, faith is your gift. And so we rest upon you even as we cry, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, bless this time that we spend meditating on your word. Bless it not because we are worthy, not because your servant is eloquent, but Lord, because you are gracious. Oh Lord, you are the God who raises the dead. You are powerful and you are kind. And so we pray that you would be powerful among us this day by your spirit to work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please do you have a seat? Well, friends, I think all of us have had that experience of a time when we were upset, but we didn't quite understand why. Sometimes we find ourselves unsettled without knowing why, uneasy. I think we can all understand the psalm writer of Psalm 42, when he twice asks himself in this psalm, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. So the psalmist is asking himself, why are you cast down? I don't understand my own soul, he's saying. We don't always judge our hearts rightly. We don't always know what's going on in our hearts. And by the way, that's one reason we need to be careful when we're drawn towards anger. When we want to justify our anger and say we're right to be angry, we may not understand all the dynamics that might cloud our anger with sin as so we think about anger in the book of Jonah. So how do we examine our hearts and understand what's going on inside of us? Well, God here gives us a crash course at the end of the book of Jonah. Instead of just telling Jonah, shut up, when Jonah talks back to God, as we might do, God continues to prod and question Jonah with questions. Do you do well to be angry? And what's in Jonah's heart comes out in his answers. Here, we've seen it in his anger. Last Sunday, we focused on Jonah's anger. But here, this Sunday, we also see what comes out in his joy. Jonah's joy. Our emotions can be windows into our souls to show us what's going on in our heart, to show us our idolatries, what we treasure. Think about it. Jonah is jubilant here over this plant that gives him shade. It grows up. It gives him cool relief. And yet, at the same time, he's exceedingly angry at the miracle of Nineveh's repentance in chapter 3. And we should ask ourselves this question. What makes me exceedingly glad? What makes you exceedingly glad? Your joy, along with your anger, your frustrations, gives you a mirror into your soul to show you what you treasure, what's most important to you. And we could add to that, we see our hearts in how we respond to different circumstances. As Jonah. Uh, here has his circumstance change. And his response shows us what's in his heart. We know how quick we are to blame our circumstances for our problems. And Jonah blames God here for destroying this plan. He's upset about it. But his response gives us a window into his heart. And God knew what he was doing as he's drawing out Jonah's heart so that he can, so Jonah can see for himself what's going on. As God is doing heart surgery here in this fourth chapter of Jonah, really throughout the book. Now, as we come near the end of Jonah, one of the things that struck me throughout this book is how the book reveals God. Because it reveals God as being all-powerful, right? As immense. This is the God who throws a storm, just as the sailors throw cargo overboard. This is the God who commands a whale, a great fish, to swallow up a man. And then vomit him out. Right? This is an all-powerful God. He's immense. And yet at the same time, he's a God of relationship. A God who's not too high and mighty to interact with this man. He's personal. He's a God of relationship. He cares. And he delights in prayer. Notice in this book that every human character in this book prays. The sailors pray. Jonah prays in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. The people of Nineveh pray. And yet, at the end of this book, in chapter 4, Jonah's prayer is angry, as we've seen. And he's suggesting that what he knows and what he says is better than what God says. After God spares the people of Nineveh, notice how Jonah focuses inward. He says, this is not what I said. He's using these pronouns, I, me, my, and he's setting himself up as the arbiter of good and evil. We're going to talk more about that next time and how God answers his objection. But God said, it is good. And Jonah is saying, this is not good. The God who says, this is good. Jonah saying, this is not good. He's putting God on trial in his kangaroo court. And you're going to notice those words in this chapter, good and evil, well and bad. Verse 3, he says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, I've told you before that Jonah, the first half of Jonah mirrors the second half of Jonah as There's the call of God to go to Nineveh, and then there's Jonah's response, and then in the chapter after that, there's Jonah interacting with God, uh, that there's a mirror there. But in chapter 2, we saw a lot of things, and there's parallels here, but what is missing is thanksgiving. Think about that. Jonah is thankful that he's been saved from death in chapter 2. He's thankful that he's been swallowed up by that great fish, that he didn't drown. But here, he's the opposite of thankful. He's angry with God. He can be thankful when he benefits from God's blessings, but he's not thankful when other people benefit from God's blessings. Where is Jonah's thanksgiving for God saving hundreds and thousands of people? Sinclair Ferguson says that Jonah here is back at square one. He's almost spiritually back to square one. He's wishing he would die, just like when the sailors uh, said, what should we do? And he said, throw me over. And yet God continues to dialogue with Jonah throughout it all. I think God's graciousness is amazing here. How long do you keep pursuing a wayward child? Isaiah says he holds out his hands all day long to a people who continually act like that, who provoke him to his face. But God is patient with Jonah, as we've pointed out. Jonah's just letting loose his anger, and we see God's grace to him here. He doesn't say, stop it, stop it, shut up. But he continues to dialogue, and he we would say he condescends to dialogue with Jonah. Think about that. In itself, that's an amazing thing. Which of us would have God dialogue with us? What is man that God would give a thought to us? The sea captain suggested that God is transcendent. What is it that he cares to, to, for me personally, that he would interact with me? Uh, Jonah, the, the sea captain said, maybe God will give a thought to us. Back in chapter 1. We don't have a right to dialogue and, and reason with God. Remember, Job learned that. Job was trying to get an audience with God. But what did God do? In his own timing, he, he made his presence known to Job and the whirlwind. And after that, Job is silenced. He repents in dust and ashes. It says at the end of Job, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you made make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You can't just make an appointment with God and discuss things with him. He dwells in inaccessible light. When God says in Isaiah, let us reason together, he's not saying that he's actually going to interact with you and reason with you. He's saying that you need to think about what you're doing reasonably. But God is so kind. We call this God's condescension when he does these things that he doesn't need to do when he accommodates himself to human beings. When Jesus shows Thomas the nail marks in his hands. God dialogues with Jonah even though he's like a child having a tantrum. Martin Luther, the reformer, is amazed at this and points out that Jonah chats so uninhibitedly with God As though he were not in the least afraid of him, he confides in him as in a father. Jonah is, Martin Luther says, God's dear child despite his sin. We observe, Luther said, how very kindly, patiently, uh, very kindly, paternally and amiably God deals with those who place their trust in him in times of need. It is the daily sin of a child that the heavenly father willingly bears in his mercy. Well, friends, doesn't this example give you assurance that God bears with you, that He's patient with you despite your protests and your frustrations with Him at various times? Now, we're not meant to emulate Jonah here at all, but we are meant to go to the Lord with our prayers. He's exactly the one to turn to when we are frustrated, when we are upset. Where else can we go? We should pray honestly. We're honest, don't we recognize that there's times that we think I have to get my life in order before I can pray, before I can approach God, before I can come to church. But that's not how it works, friends. We go to the Lord so that we can be made right. Jonah here is uh, going to the Lord at the very least, As, as critical as I've been of Jonah. At least he's going to the Lord. Hebrews reminds us Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears. It's been said that Christ's crying and tears recommend to us ardor and earnestness in prayer, for we ought not to pray to God formally, but with ardent desires. Remember Psalm 62, my favorite, favorite expression of prayer says, Trust in Him at all times when people pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Boys like liked the reflection by Philip Yancey that as the books of Jonah, uh, as the books of Job, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk clearly show, God has a high threshold of tolerance for what is appropriate to say in a prayer. God can handle my unsuppressed rage. I may well find that my vindictive feelings need God's correction, but only by taking those feelings to God will I have the opportunity for correction and healing. So go to the Lord with your prayers. And find grace. And speaking of God's grace, see God's grace in the plant that brought up. Now we could ask the question, why do we have things like the Lord's Supper? Why do we have baptism, these visible things, these tangible illustrations? Uh, We've been going through Isaiah and, and so in my mind I often think of Isaiah's sons and the special names that they had that he could point to his children like in chapter 7 and say, as surely as you see this child, know that one day there's going to be a child named Emmanuel, God with us. God gives physical, intangible signs to his people. And here, God gives Jonah a theology lesson through this plant. Verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat on." Under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah leaves Nineveh after this great repentance. He sets himself up on the east of the city overlooking Nineveh. And he's going to see if God really brings that destruction that he promised after 40 days. Now, Jonah went east Remember, Israel was west. Jonah talked a big game in chapter 2 about worshiping God in his temple, but now all he's intent on is seeing God destroy the wicked people in Nineveh. It's a striking echo of when Jonah was supposed to go east to to Nineveh, and instead he went west to Tarshish in the beginning of the book. And Jonah makes himself a shelter, a booth. Remember, Remember the climate there in the Middle East in Israel? In in, uh, Assyria, it's hot. It's desert like. So he makes himself a shelter called a booth. It gives him some relief from the shade. And then verse 6 tells us the Lord appointed a plant, likely a castor oil plant, just as he had appointed the great fish earlier to swallow Jonah. But this plant grew up and it shaded Jonah. Now, this time he's not saved from a watery grave but it uses that word saved, and it says it's saved from discontent, uh, discomfort. Although, as I was reading in my Bible, I noticed it's got a little footnote there. It says, or evil, and that's bringing out something important. In Hebrew, that's the word evil. And I think it's too narrow of a translation to say discomfort here, because I think that here the narrator is letting us know that this plant and its lesson is an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to save Jonah from the evil in his heart. God appointed this plant to save Jonah from his evil. Now, think about Jonah. He has this new blessing. We know in the Old Testament that a great theme that the psalmists celebrate is having shelter in the shadow of the Almighty. God sheltering, stubborn, furious Jonah he is another grace to Jonah despite his sin and his anger and his violation of the 10th commandment as we were just confessing, wishing ill on other people and the 6th commandment as well. But this grace of the Lord seems to go unnoticed by Jonah. As we've seen last time, Jonah's so blind to God's blessings. And so not only is the shelter of this plant a blessing from the Lord that goes unnoticed, but just think about what Jonah did. He made a booth for himself. And there's an irony in that, a, a sukkah. You go back in Israel's history, you remember that God sheltered his people. He provided for them while they wandered in the wilderness. They had a feast to commemorate this, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles as it's called, that celebrates God's grace in sheltering his people. And yet, again, Jonah is blind to the irony of him setting this shelter up for himself. But God continues to shelter him. And shouldn't that shade, shouldn't that blessing have just made Jonah come to his senses to pack everything up, to go back home and praise the Lord, or at least go into Nineveh and evangelize and teach them about the Lord? And we're told next, though, that Jonah is exceedingly glad because of the shelter of this plant. Do you see the irony of Jonah's gladness here? He's exceedingly glad, but why? Shouldn't he be exceedingly glad that he has just been a part of the most amazing revival in human history? The repentance of the city of Nineveh? And yet it's the opposite. How can you be happy about getting some shade, and not happy about thousands of people turning to the Lord. We might ask the question, does Jonah do well to be happy? There's a challenge in this for us. Do we long for others to receive the good news? Do we rejoice in that the way that God does? Are we thankful only for God's blessings when it benefits us? Or are we grateful when other people receive God's blessings as well? Do we rejoice in that? Do we weep with those who weep and celebrate with those who receive God's blessings? God has an abundance. It's not a zero-sum game where he either blesses us or he blesses others. God has an abundance. He can bless both. There's plenty to go around. But Jonah is curved in on himself. We've Talked about the 10th commandment, wanting the best for others. You could think about the 6th commandment, thou shall not kill, uh, remembering that you you shall not murder. Reminding us that when we say we're pro-life, it means we should want the good of other people in a variety of ways, wanting them to prosper. The poet William Blake warned, joy in another's loss of ease builds a hell in heaven's despite. Jonah's joy here reveals his heart. And think about this. He's joyful about something that's very short-lived. He's happy because of this shelter, but it's a short-lived pleasure. Verse 7 pivots. God appointed another living thing, a worm. I'll just say right there, notice how God works. He works in miraculous things like appointing a fish. That's not something that you see. But he also works in these mundane ways like a worm eating a plant. Something that we do see every day. God uses all these things to do his will. But God appoints this worm and it eats the plant and it destroys it. Jonah had this blessing for only one day and then, using the same word, God then appointed a hot east wind and it made Jonah weak he's suffering sunstroke like symptoms and he's pleading now for death Jonah isn't the first prophet to plead for death but he might be the first to do so after so many blessings and so much success Jonah succeeded in his ministry in Nineveh it, by God's standards right or by the standards that we would suggest He's wildly successful beyond what anyone would expect. But he still wishes to die. Earlier, prophets like Elisha and Moses had wanted to die because of their sense of failure in their ministry. But Jonah is a parody of these prophets. He succeeds and he still wants God to just strike him down then and then. We're meant to see Jonah as ridiculous in his joy and his anger here. And I want want you to think about Jonah's fickleness here. There's a poem, I was trying to find it, about being happy based on the weather. Notice Jonah's fickleness. One moment he's very unhappy, he's displeased about people being saved, and the next minute he's very happy about this plant. He's up and he's down like a roller coaster. I think his situation challenges us. Is our focus too narrow and too small? Are our joys given by things that are inconsequential? I find this is a challenge to me in my heart. What makes me exceedingly glad in life? Is it trifles? Is it things that don't matter? Things that are ash heaps here today and gone tomorrow? Or are they things that count getting merit badges. I don't think it's wrong for me to be glad when I win a chess game. But is that really my greatest sense of joy? Short-term successes. Do I delight in the Lord and what makes Him exceedingly glad? We should ask ourselves what our joys say about our hearts if they're just focused on things that matter very little in the grand scheme of things. When our anchor is not in the Lord, then we go up and down on the roller coaster of life. We're happy when things are good and we're devastated when things are hard. Only when God is your anchor will you have a steadfast heart no matter what happens around you. Jonah shows that fickle heart, not a steadfast heart. He's angry one minute. He's happy the next. There's a reminder here for us to set our contentedness on the Lord who never changes. Not on our circumstances which change day after day. A steadfast heart would say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jonah knew the storm in chapter 1 was not a random occurrence. He attributed the waves and the billows to the Lord in chapter 2. But now Jonah speaks as if this plant grew up and then died apart from God, apart from God appointing it. Just as we are so frequently discontented because we forget God is active in what happens to us on a day-to-day basis. We forget God's handiwork in our circumstances, and so we become so frustrated like Jonah when we cut God out of the equation. Do we recognize that the Lord is behind it and has good plans for us even when we get bad news, when we get a cancer diagnosis, when things happen that would lead us to despair if we weren't anchored in the Lord. As we think about our own hearts, do do you see yourself in Jonah's sulking self-pity? How many times do we complain to God? We say, woe is me about the smallest things, and certainly this is a small thing, we're fickle like Jonah. Now, when you put this in the scheme of the, the large picture of the book of Jonah and what its lesson is, we're going to get to the answer to Jonah, uh, God's answer in the next section. But why is Jonah so upset about this plant? Think about this. Here he is. He's a prophet from Israel. He's a quote unquote good person. And yet here he is Suffering. He's enduring this hot east wind, the scorching sun. He is suffering. And meanwhile, Nineveh, those bad people, they're prospering. They're happy. They're repentant. They're spared. The world, Jonah thinks, is upside down. We could think about other questions in the Bible, right? Why is it that, quote-unquote, wicked people prosper and, quote-unquote, good people suffer? And when we think of that question in Jonah's world being turned upside down, his sense of right and wrong, we could ask the question, what would Jonah have said about the cross? What would Jonah have said about Calvary? What would he have said about the rightness and wrongness of the perfect, sinless Son of God dying for sinners, for people who are no better than Nineveh? Jesus had the opposite. Uh, He had a steadfast heart. He delighted in the will of the the Lord. That's what made him exceedingly glad. Remember in John 4, he said, when his disciples tried to feed him, he said, I have a food that you know nothing about. I know I've been pretty hard on Jonah here, but at the very least, he's going to the Lord in his prayer. That's the mark of a believer in distress. They go to the Lord, like those Dark Night of the Soul Psalms. He's bringing his complaints to the Lord. And we see God working in him. And part of that is God's wisdom in destroying creature comforts. For Jonah, part of his being saved from evil, his transformation here, is the destruction of this creature comfort, the plant. Now, last Sunday, we were singing a hymn by John Newton, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And we're going to sing it today as we uh, have the Lord's Supper distributed. But he alludes to Jonah's plant being destroyed here. He calls it God blasting his gourd. Newton writes, Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. In other words, sometimes the most unpleasant things you go through are those times when God is working most in your life to make you what you should be, to save you from your evil. Just as God destroyed this creature comfort for Jonah's good, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Friends, is your joy set on meaningless things like Jonah's shade? Things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Ask the Lord that you would grow and be ready for him to start breaking the knees of your idols Delight in Him. Remember Psalm 37, that great psalm that says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your hearts. He'll give you Himself. That food that Jesus spoke of. The the, uh, Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, talked about how our contentment can be like these streams of water when it's divided up into three different pipes. It's weaker than if God takes away those second and third pipes, and it comes through that one pipe stronger. In other words, God will be pleased to break our creature comforts, to take away those other streams that we delighted in so that our delight in Him would be stronger. And in your suffering, if God chooses to take away your creature comforts, those things that were once your joy, like that plant of Jonah, However much you suffer in the school of Christ, remember that it is very little compared to what Christ has suffered for you. It is less suffering than you deserve. However hot it was in those bluffs over Nineveh, it was less hot than God's wrath against Jonah's sin. It was less hot than hell where the worm never dies. How much better it is for Jonah to endure the heat of Nineveh's hills than to face the heat of hell forever. God may take away your creature comforts, but he gives you something far better, joy in him. He gives you himself joy in the Lord. There's one hymn that puts it this way. Be still, my soul. Your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. May our joy be lasting, set on the rock of ages who endured the cross and its great humiliation for the joy that was set before him, the joy of redeeming and saving you from your evil. May he be our joy now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would conform our joy to be like your joy, that we would not have happiness that's based merely on things that are temporary, on our circumstances, on our merit badges that we've earned and our successes in the world's sight, when our bank account goes up, when the value of our house goes up. Lord, set our happiness, set our joy on that which is true, On that which endures forever on you our god and in knowing you that we would say with the apostle paul everything else is rubbish compared to knowing jesus christ lord god we pray that you would indeed increase our joy and delight in you lord god we pray that you would work in us in this way and in so many other ways lord make us have steadfast hearts not fickle hearts that are upset one moment and happy the next, but Lord, make us anchored upon you, the rock of ages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.